0: on Halloween in 2001 uh, and tomorrow's All Saints Day and then we come to Thanksgiving and it's a complicated year. Um, and then we come into the season traditionally where we think about gifting one another. And uh, I've already gotten my um, cal- my um, heifer project Uh, catalog. It says this is the most important gift catalog in the world. And usually at at this point I bring in the heifer catalog and we as a group uh, pick out something that we'll donate to someone somewhere. And I was thinking this morning as I was putting it in my pile to bring uh, that one of the things that we are all thinking about so much is how complicated the world situation is and what a lot of fixing it's going to need, and um, I thought to myself, in a certain sense, uh, what good uh, it, the thought could come up in the mind. What good will two goats and a sheep make in the sphere of the world's problems? And I would think it will make two goats and one sheep's worth of good. You know that that there's no way of evaluating that it's more good than without the, those two goats and a sheep that every two goats and a sheep count. been really thinking these days, and uh, probably you are too, about how everything counts in a, a way that it might not have two months ago. Are you aware, uh, I am, of uh, how much more dear things have become? Um, perhaps they should have been all the time but how much more dear they've become. Uh, the closest example is I stopped on my way here to get some coffee this morning. and When I'm down in Marin, I always stop and have coffee or have breakfast in the same place. And uh, it's a small operation, and uh, uh, one cook and one woman who's uh, serving the tables, and she's tremendously cheerful. She's just... Enormously cheerful. She's a wonderful person. I've known her now for some considerable years. She knows some of my children and some of my grandchildren. Always inquires after them. And uh, she's wearing as her Halloween costume today, um, the kind of gown that people wear at um, uh, Miss America beauty contests. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she's a middle-aged woman. You know, I I I think she's quite beautiful, but. Uh, and not even but I think she's quite beautiful. Period. And uh, usually when you wear those kinds of gowns, you have a fairly live figure, and that isn't what she has. But she's got a. a, a she looks great, and she's and rhinestones and a crown actually, <laughs> well, yeah. and uh, she looks beautiful. And she's wearing one of those banners like you wear Miss Louisiana, and. Uh, it says on it, in, it's a white banner, and it says in uh, Sparkle on it, where someone has printed it out in Sparkle, it says, Miss Congeniality, <laughs> and it's great, you know, and I, I, and I suddenly was so touched, I thought I might cry, you know. <laughs> she is, and I said, where did he get that? That's great. And she said, "My husband had it made for me yesterday. Is that the dearest thing? <laughs> and and I've been thinking the last couple of days i i uh, I meet with a group of uh, teachers and colleagues uh, from all over the country. We're a small group of people, and we meet every couple of months. and uh, Monday was our day to meet. And we haven't met since before September 11th. So spent a lot of time talking about uh, how are we? You know, secondarily, how are you working and how are you teaching? But really, how are we? How are you? And uh, the, really what I want to say is, at the end of the day, what I found myself saying is one of the curious things I discover is um, as the, as I learn more and as I study more, I'm certainly reading as much as I can and studying as much as I can, uh, the the situation gets more and more complex. And the roots of it get more and more complex and distal. And I keep having the thought, I hope some people much smarter than I am are figuring this out somewhere because it's, it require a massive overhaul of the world, really, to get this right. But and at the end of the day, and we'd, we'd all said that in one way or another, we'd all talk about, talked about how, how this plays out in the body, how everybody feels differently. But at the end of the day, I said, you know, it's a curious thing, or I don't know, perhaps it's not curious. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about um, a loss of innocence. And I, I do want to talk about that a little bit today. But in a, in, in, in a way, I hope that's um, maybe positive. Because what I have not lost is a sense of faith in essential human goodness. If anything, that is bigger. I, the, the, I have such a sense, peculiarly, like this human enterprise has got to work because human beings are so good. Really they are. Most of us are. Um, so when I came this morning and here she was, Miss Congeniality, my husband made that for me. think Everything becomes um, tremendously dear. Uh, my, uh, when, I, when, I, when I'm teaching here on Wednesdays, I sleep at my um, son and my daughter-in-law's house here in Marin the night before. So my granddaughter Grace came to show me her costume this morning, and uh, I actually took me—that's a great costume, Grace. I couldn't exactly figure out what it was. So I had to wait for her to tell me. And of course, you know, I, I, it looked to me like a, a druid. It's a it kind of looked to me like a druid. It's a white gown with a uh, white uh, um, diaphanous sleeves and uh, just plain white gown, white diaphanous sleeves, and a huge wreath of uh, grape leaves um, twined together around her head. And I I, I thought it was a druid. Uh, they, actually, she said it's Mother Nature. That's what I am. <laughs> and, and did you know that? Could you tell that from the, from the outfit? It's Mother Nature. But the, the wreath was way too big. So, I mean, Sarah cut it down actually by the time she went to school. But but it was so dear looking even too big you know that that uh, the things of beauty that human <coughs> beings do or the the creativity of the human spirit is a thing that I have not lost faith in. I had a conversation with Naomi Newman yesterday so you probably na- know Naomi because she's very much part of Spirit Rock and uh, she's a principal person at the Traveling Jewish Theater in San Francisco and currently on the board of Spirit Rock and We were talking about one thing or another, and she said, uh, how's your book going? Because she knows I've been working this year on writing a book. And I said, well, I think it's fine. I said, but you know, uh, I I was thinking it was fine. I I do think it's fine. I said, but you know, everything uh, since September 11th, um, the kinds of things that we thought were important have become trivial. And she said, no, 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 nothing. It's the opposite. Everything has become important. Nothing is trivial, least of all, art or creativity in any way. Uh, I was was thinking about that. I got an email this morning, very early this morning, from, uh, and this is where I want to really start from, because do you remember when we began to sit this morning, I said, um, I'll give you some instructions, and these are the classical instructions. I gave the classical instructions, let your body be erect, really feel yourself in your body, let your attention rest in the coming and going of the breath because it's the most ubiquitous, omnipresent, everybody's doing it all the time, thing that's going on. It's repetitive, it's plain, it's actually the sign that we're alive. If that were not there, we wouldn't be alive. So here it is, reaffirming moment to moment this existence, and it's plain, it's ordinary, so that it, in its repetitiveness it has a kind of um, uh, focusing and calming uh, quality about it, quite like sitting at the seashore and having the waves come back and forth, um, or knitting. There are certain kinds of activities that the uh, uh, meditation um uh, researchers are doing now. Repetitive activities, calm down your mind, and they focus it. I listened uh, the other day to one of those machines someone had that you can plug into your bedroom at at night, plug in and turn on if you have trouble sleeping. And the sounds that they make are heartbeats, ta-dun, 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 ta dum or um, seashore noises, the waves come and go, or rain noises where there's a kind of a steady beating. So one of the things about being attentive to the breath is it has that calming and focusing um, effect on the mind. But it's so important to me to, especially these days, to be reminding myself and everybody else that this is not about calming down. It's fine to calm down. We certainly could all use calming down. World could use calming down. But really the point of mindfulness is calling down in order that our natural wisdom will manifest, in order for us to see what's true, in order for us to see most profoundly that the sense of separate self that causes us to be greedy or causes us to fight with other people is really a specious entity. It's really not there. We go to church and we sing, it's all one and we are one, and all. Every religious tradition either has it as we're all one or it's all zero, uh, depending on whether you're a Buddhist or a Christian or a Jew. But there's, in that typology, the one is the same as the zero. It just means there isn't any separateness. It's separateness and it's non separate, and there's nothing that you can grasp on. Well, there's non separate. And it's all of a fabric. I actually think it's zero and one. Like uh, something like, uh, isn't it computer language is all zero and one? I think it's all zero and one in the sense of, uh, on the level of zero, it's just all arising and passing away. On the level of one, something is happening. But it's happening because of every other thing. There's nothing that isn't affected by or affecting everything else. I really think that's what we're meant to see. I uh, was thinking yesterday about faith because it came to me that I really wanted to talk about faith. And what do we have faith in? What do I have faith in? Uh, Would it be fair to say I have faith in the fact that... uh, uh, I do have faith in the essential goodness of the human heart. That I have discovered. I haven't thought about it. It Just came to me. Look how good people are. Been uh, a tremendous amount of talk about, uh, and uh, certainly without without question, appropriate talk about the great gallantry of the uh, police and fire personnel around the whole incident of. The tragedy in New York. But I read this morning somewhere that uh, there's been a long time since 1912, um, a firefighter's memorial on the Upper West Side in Morningside Heights, uh, some sort of statue. Where is it? I'll read this to you. Um, 1912 inscription, uh, on the memorial said soldiers in a war that never ends. And uh, it said along the pediment, you know, along the stand of that statue, uh, my comrades in grief, the person who had written this article, people, uh, other people who had been there, my comrades in grief had left dolls of Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street, a hardcover copy of The Little Engine That Could. There was a sculpture of a clenched fist, and a set of lyrics for "America the Beautiful." Mostly, though, there were candles—yardside candles, votive candles, candles of the Virgin of Guadalupe offering solace, and of the Archangel Michael's sword held high. Someone wise had thought to leave a box of matches should any of the flames expire. Beautiful. So yesterday, I looked up faith in. Uh, The Liberation Teachings of the Buddha by uh, the teachings of Upandita Sayadaw. Um, Upandita is a Burmese teacher, taught, teaches a fair amount. uh, Teaches a lot in Burma, very renowned in Burma. Taught in this country, he was one of my teachers for a while and one of my teacher's teachers. Um, I learned some very good things from him. And I uh, looked up faith yesterday to remind myself about what would Upandita have said about faith, talked about faith being in practice, really uh, the most important of the faculties to condition zeal in practice. That, uh, that we sit and or we stand or we work or we live uh, paying attention in order to wake up in order to wake up in a whole of our lives, not just when we are suddenly feeling ourselves imperiled, but really all the time. What will make that kind of zeal to pay attention? What really is going to take out the uh, 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 hindrances of the mind, what he probably would call the obscurations? He talked about faith being the primary of them. He said, this is the way faith happens. If you practice paying attention to mental and physical phenomena meticulously, respectfully, and with persistent continuity, I love that, you know, if you pay attention to mental and physical phenomena continually, what did he say a minute? Meticulously, so that's what we're carefully doing. We're paying attention. Respectfully is such a good word. I mean, um, in a sense, uh, this is something that Jack would say. He would say, I bow to that. But really, when we say I'm bowing to that phenomenon, I'm bowing to that feeling, I'm respecting what's coming up in me, it means I am not pushing it away and pretending it's not there. I'm not uh, closing the door on it. I'm paying attention to it, that's what respect is. But I'm not grabbing it either. I'm not doing anything to it. I'm respectfully paying attention. Do it meticulously, uh, respectfully, and with persistent continuity. That means all the time. Under these conditions, the inner hindrances to meditation will soon be removed the inner hindrances are the, com- the, the tensions of greed and aversion and uh, sleepiness and torpor and restlessness of mind and wobbly mind, which is doubt. Under those conditions, the inner hindrances to meditation will soon be removed. The controlling faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom will clear it of these disturbances. If you are such a practitioner, you will experience a tranquility you may have never felt before. You may be filled with awe. That's good quotes, this is what you'll think. Fantastic, it's really true. All those teachers talk about peace and calm, and now I'm really experiencing it. <laughs> That's, uh, actually, the, the reason it, it tickles me so much is Upandita in his demeanor, in his public demeanor, is fairly um, sedate. So Upandita is saying, fantastic, is a little bit out of voice, but he doesn't speak English. So maybe when he's speaking in Burmese, that's actually what he's saying. Uh, Thus faith, the first of the controlling faculties, will have arisen out of your practice, And then, if energy is present, effort follows, and you'll say to yourself, this is just the beginning, again, in quotes. If I work a little harder, I'll have experiences even better than this. A renewed effort guides the mind to hit its target of observation in each moment. Thus, mindfulness consolidates and deepens. And mindfulness has the uncanny ability to bring about concentration, one-pointedness of mind, when mindfulness penetrates into the object of observation moment by moment, the mind gains the capacity to remain stable and undistracted, content within the object. It's this natural in this natural fashion, concentration becomes well established and strong. In general, the stronger one's mindfulness, the stronger one's concentration will be. Here's the important that was important. Here's where we're coming to the really With faith, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, four of the five controlling faculties have been assembled. Wisdom, the fifth, needs no special introduction. If the first four factors are present, wisdom or insight unfolds of itself. One begins to see very clearly, intuitively, how mind and matter are separate entities and begins also to understand in a very special way how mind and matter are connected by cause and effect. Upon each insight, one's verified faith deepens. A practitioner who has seen objects arising and passing away from moment to moment feels very fulfilled. He again quotes Upandita as saying, it's fabulous, just moment after moment of these phenomena with no self behind them. There's no one at home. This discovery brings a great sense of relief and ease of mind. Subsequent insights into impermanent suffering and the absence of self have a particularly strong capacity to stimulate faith. They fill us with powerful conviction that the Dhamma, as it has been told us, is authentic. I found this picked up my mood very much. I hope it did yours. Thinking about the the fact that one's own inner experience is non-controvertible, that it's a difference between, um, perhaps it's the difference between believing and trusting. When people say to me, uh, do you believe that, uh, or actually when people say that, they usually say it in terms of, surely you don't believe that. You know, that so that you have to start from below <laughs> to first get up to an, you know, <laughs> you're coming back from behind, you're already in a vulnerable condition. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm quite careful not to say I believe, uh, What I like to say is what I trust is. And what I like even more to say is what it has been my experience is that Because one's own experience is incontrovertible. Somebody can't tell you that's not your experience. It's your experience. Suppose I say, I have the experience that the human heart is fundamentally responsive and kindly. I believe that. I believe it especially... uh, I've been reading a lot, and you probably have a lot, too, about mistakes that have been made. Not only mistakes in judgment of foreign policy, but really mistakes of um, mistakes of blindness, mistakes of greed that really have contributed to a world situation that's in a lot of trouble. Not a lot of. I mean, how do I want to say this? One of the things that I think about, the more I read and the more I educate myself about that, somebody said to me the other day, "I'm embarrassed to be an American," having read a, 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 a quite stunning article in uh, in the Guardian. You might want to look it up. Uh, the, uh, I, got, uh, I, I, I found it in the uh, internet. The person who wrote it is a current Indian novelist. Her name is Arundhati Roy. Uh, she's the author of The God of Small Things, which is currently top of the London bestseller list. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. It's an amazing 40-year-old writer, Indian woman. Who is also an amazing visionary, amazing commentator on the <coughs> world scene. She wrote two very stunning articles in The Guardian, and you can find them on the internet. Uh, and somebody said to me after reading them, uh, I'm embarrassed to be an American, and uh, I'm very I was very stunned, and not surprised, but stunned, and um, really moved enormously by the strength of her presentation. I think there have been some very tremendous mistakes made in the way the world has been evolving, but I think people are generally good. I think everybody didn't make those mistakes. Have such a sense that if everyone was suddenly to become educated, everybody suddenly learned, everybody in the world, if everybody that I met, if everybody in America, if everybody in the Western world and in the Eastern world uh, suddenly got informed about what's really happening, I think people are good. I think people would share. I was reading this morning very early an article about Confucius. Didn't know a lot about Confucius. Do you know a lot about Confucius? There's a, a resurgence of interest in Confucius in uh, in China. Uh, I think we, as a child, we only we uh, we thought I, I, I must have learned about Confucius in school. Something. But that he gave rules for how you should behave yourself. we thought about Confucius as the ultimate school teacher. I think, in a way, he was the ultimate school teacher, but I think he, what he was teaching was um, carefulness in paying attention so that the essential goodness of people could come through. Let me read you just one little paragraph from um, Confucius lived in an age of disorder. When tiny dukedoms were divided into armed camps, often at war with each other and among themselves, most people lived in want and were oppressed by bad government. In this forlorn climate, Confucius espoused the revolutionary idea that the purpose of government was to make people happy and that leaders should rule by moral example rather than by force. That sounds very good, doesn't it? He believed they could only do that when the government was administered by the best educated people in the country. To that end, he accepted students from every social stratum, declaring, I have never refused to teach anyone, even though he came to me on foot with nothing more to offer as tuition than a package of dried meat. In an era of ruthless despotism, he ur- urged men to think for themselves, and the uh, the author of this article has put in parentheses here, Women apparently never came into his thinking at all, so we just have to make a little slack for the <laughs> for the politically incorrectness of it. Um, more than anything, he emphasized that every man had a duty to stand up for what he knew was right, no matter the consequences. And this is Confucius quote, "If I feel in my heart that I am wrong, I must stand in fear, even though my opponent is the least formidable of people, he told his disciple. But if my own heart tells me that I am right, I shall go forward even against thousands and tens of thousands. In a famous encounter when a corrupt local lord asked Confucius how to deal with widespread thievery, the sage replied, if only you were not avaricious yourself, (laughs) they would not steal even if you paid them to do it. Mm-hmm. Although uh, although Confucius placed a heavy emphasis on devotion to parents and by extension to one's social superiors, his democratic leanings ultimately gave authorities cause for alarm. They really they did. They began to burn his teachings or tried to, and some of them survived because they were hidden. Eventually, of course, of course, China's rulers perceived the benefits of attracting loyal and competent administrators trained according to Confucian principles, and in time, the system produced the world's first professional civil service. It also became a government lavishly praised if idealized by Enlightenment thinkers, including Voltaire. The 18th century German mathematician and Confucian scholar, Gottfried Leibniz, even argued that, China China, ought to send missionaries to us to teach us the purpose and use of natural theology in the same way we send missionaries to instruct them in revealed theology. This is an interesting point now. In the Analects, which is what people normally read of Confucius, he sometimes sounds insufferably fussy. That's what this uh, author said, and she's quoting Confucius. Um, Saying about a a wise person does not sit until his mat is straight so that sounds a little fussy usually however he comes across more warmly but you know I I read that and I thought to myself he does not sit until his mat is straight it's okay you know I take it as a um, uh, not as a compulsivity but as a um, what do you call it a metaphor you know to straighten my mind. Um, trying to think who it was who said. Maybe, was it Thoreau? Somebody said. Um, First thing I do in the morning when I get up is make up my bed. Next thing I do is I make up my mind. <laughs> and it's, um, it's. And I I I've thought about it a lot, in fact. Because I think that there's a way in which uh, you can sleep in a bed, it gets rumpled, you know. It doesn't look the same when you get out of it in the morning as when you got in it the night before. So you have to straighten it out a little bit. I thought about the mind also gets rumpled. You know, it gets besieged and beleaguered and tired. It's got too much input and it gets rumpled. And uh, I, I, I like actually the idea of straightening out my mind. I, I might change it as my metaphor. I... I've been talking about morning practice in terms of how have to get up in the morning and make sure that my head is screwed on right, but that's a little violent. <laughs> it's not as nice as straighten up my mind. It's nicer than screw my head on straight. Um, but it's a, really, people ask, for instance, why would you want to sit in the morning? You've just rested. And it's not actually to rest. That's the point. Maybe it's the particularly best time to sit because I am rested. And I don't have to deal with sleepiness or tiredness. If I'm going to get a head start on paying attention all day long, that would be the time to do it. I've been very impressed for a long time with the fact that my gym um, up in Sonoma County opens at 5.30 in the morning. And I often have reasons to be at the gym at 5.30. I have to be someplace else at 7.00. So if I'm there at 5.30, I can be out at 6.30 and be where I'm going to be at 7.00. So I might arrive before 5.30, 5.20. And in the winter, it's dark. And there are people there, in the dark, in, in, waiting right outside the door. So when the door opens, they can charge in and get on the right machines. And, uh, and they just did it yesterday, and it's the same machine. Um, or in the winter, they don't stand at the door, they wait in their cars because it might be pouring, but then the minute the light goes on in the gym, boom, they roll out of the car and into the gym. Every day, over and over again, it's the same straighten up the body. And unless they're, you know, getting themselves fit for some exhibition or for some contest, working out for a marathon, most of us are not working out for a marathon. We're working out to be in the same place that we were more or less yesterday, <laughs> or not much worse. You know, uh, it's keeping it together. So that is, it, but everybody's there because they look It's It's uh, what, um, what in mindfulness is called clear comprehension of purpose. It goes along with uh, uh, the teachings of mindfulness. In the Mindfulness Sutta, actually, the Mindfulness Sutta does not mention clear comprehension of purpose, but there's a lovely book, um, I don't know if the right word is lovely, there's a wonderful book called uh, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. It's uh, recent in the last decade, died very old in uh, Sri Lanka. Jnana Panaka was German by birth, became, uh, went to Sri Lanka as a young man and uh, became a monk, became a Maha Terra, which means a very, very long-term exalted monk and was eventually head of the um, Buddhist Publication Society in uh, Sri Lanka and uh, it's a wonderful book, and the first chapter is a very long discussion of the mindfulness sutta and about the instructions of have your body erect, pay attention, how to do it, and why. And then the second chapter is called "Clear Comprehension of Purpose," and it's so um, it, it makes it so clear that those are connected. That when you pay attention you really not only have a, um, a clearer uh, understanding, as Upandita is pointing out, of the need to practice. So it sends you back into your contemplative practice all the more in order to deepen your understanding of the truth. But my sense is it sends you out into life all the more because there's that much more to be done. that The expression of, of the wisdom of non-self which would result in a peaceful world. Instead of you and me, they'd be just us. And it would be completely different. That it really catapults you out into the world. We can't do otherwise. So what I guess I was saying about the gym, I'm trying to go back to where I got off on that tangent, is that the people in the gym are there with zeal every day because they have a clear comprehension of purpose. They know what they're there for. And they know it's not going to be fun. Nobody looks like, Not so many people look like they're having fun in a gym. If you look around, uh, people tend to look a little bit grim. They're just doing what they're doing, <laughs> you know, watching the news, running on a treadmill or something. Uh, it doesn't look like that fun. I mean, the, the, the people who are playing basketball in that part of the gym they look like they're having fun but the people who are all by themselves they don't look like they're having fun but they're doing it because they know it's good for them they'd have to think every day is this good for me should i go to the gym this is one of the things they do they get up and go to the gym and when i think about the need to get up in the morning and whatever metaphor you want screw the head on straight or uh, straighten the rumpled mind something needs to get done in the morning so that we make the judgments all through the day in a way that really expresses what I think the natural inclination of our heart is. So this is where I wanted to go back to one phrase that I heard myself say in the instructions this morning. After I had given you the instructions for technically how to sit and, how to, and what to pay attention to, pay attention to the breath in and out, I did say, really, we're not doing this in order to just do this. We're doing this for the mind to become settled and focused and clear itself so that what will manifest is that understanding that what we sense as separateness about us isn't true. That when we are startled, frightened, not so clear, we have such a sense of me and I who own that of a me or an I, who owns all these processes of mind, who owns every thought, who made up every thought, who owns every feeling. And the mind is really quiet, or uncomplicated. Not quiet, but just uncomplicated. Doesn't get it quiet. It gets uncomplicated, and then there's awareness, and awareness of just what's there. All there is is the awareness of what's there and what's arising and what's passing away, what's arising and what's passing away. It becomes very clear that everything is arising and passing away. It's not belonging to anyone, nobody owns it. That the mind is not, doesn't end in the head. Well, this is my brain. But really, the mind. It's interesting, you know, when you write for. Uh, uh, and an editor looks at your book or your manuscript and you use a word like the mind. Uh, there would be a notation in the margin that says, who's mind? <laughs> so you have to figure out, I have to figure out ways to talk about mind that aren't weird so that somebody reading it doesn't sound like I don't have a sense of personhood or that, that people don't have a sense of their mind. But I'm um, very much a sense of mind as the faculty of consciousness operative that puts together all these events coming and going and weaves out of it um, a sense that there's someone really there. It's, it's kind of like watching a movie and believing that it's real, that those folks who are really celluloid dots or whatever it is now, digitalized dots, I'm sure it hasn't been celluloid for a long time, but digitalized dots, that uh, those folks really aren't there. Just digitalized dots that are there, but while it's there, it's roughly real. We have very much the sense, uh, I certainly do, uh, when uh, experiences are happening, especially if they're strong valence experiences, certainly feel the sense that I own them, that they're mine. We talk that way. I feel angry. I feel this. I am that. Um, and we construct an I who is. that Any of those things. If we, ta- if we spoke, uh, if our syntax, our, if the way we put together our language were different, we'd probably say anger is present. You know, I know very little Japanese. I learned enough Japanese about 20 years ago. To travel in Japan, and I, I could travel. And anybody here is Japanese? No, speaks Japanese? No, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Me also. <laughs> 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 That's it. Um. <laughs> but but what I do remember is that unless you have to make a point about who is doing an action the structure of a sentence is uh, eating is happening mm-hmm. or talking is happening or uh, talking happened or talking tomorrow will be happening t- tomorrow talking will be happening but not necessarily naming it we, the sentences don't don't start with I. I might say, eating is happening, talking is happening, except that someone said, who ate? Then, the, the, I mean, there is a word for I. You could say, I ate. But the structure of the language is a little different. But I don't know that, I you know, I used to think maybe the structure of the language really suggested some insight into the nature of consciousness. I'm not sure. But we have such a closely strung together uh, a... Uh, barrage of events, that they construct a single person thread of consciousness. We don't feel like one moment separate from the next, one mind moment arising separate from the next. But I, I, I was thinking about it particularly because people often, it's a reasonable question to ask, well, what would it, so what, suppose I even had that experience. Of the non-presence, the non-existence of a separate self. How would that help me out? Uh, because the truth is, you have it, you don't have it. If something uh, startles or frightens, the mind closes down. It becomes very egocentric. Never mind, I am one with all that is, which is maybe the profound truth of the universe. If I or someone I care about are am jeopardized. All of a sudden, there's very much a sense of me and mine and who I need to take care of. I think that's built into the DNA. I don't think there's another way to do that. Uh, I think it's a very wonderful thing that is built into the DNA. That's why species have continued. They take care of each other as they're born. People take care of their young. Animals take care of their young. They're very much an instinct towards care of one's own and preservation of one's own. But I've been thinking very much about the part of not me or not separate I that has to do with a sense of spacious mind. The reason I was thinking about it, I'll tell you two stories. Um, One of them was an email I had this morning uh, from a friend of mine who now uh, lives uh, uh, on the East Coast outside of New York City. And um, since he's a rabbi, he's... uh, Uh, is deputized as a chaplain to go down to the site of the, uh, not the World Trade Center actually, Uh, now there's an enormous building uh, set up, I think on Pier 38 he told me where it was, somewhere in lower Manhattan he said it's the uh, aid station for everyone who needs aid in New York and uh, having to do with that event And he said, you go there, you have a day of training of, uh, you know, essentially telling people what are the parameters of what you can do and not do as a chaplain. That was interesting. He said, you arrive, and he said, the place looks like an airplane hangar. It's enormous. And it's full of little cubicles for people to meet with people to work on whatever particular problem that person has brought. And he said, you can come there with any kind of a thing that you need to do with somebody else having to do with that event. So you can come if you're a person directly bereaved in some way, somebody you know died. You can come if you want to talk about that. You can come if you don't know how to file a death certificate. You can come if you don't know how to make out social security claims. You can come if you had a... um, a luncheonette business a block and a half from the World Trade Center, and you currently have had to close because there's no one to eat lunch there. You can come if uh, you have your apartment two blocks away um, still smells acrid and you can't go home at night, or your asthma is now acting up because of the smell in the air. You can come for any reason. And they have different personnel skilled in any of those things help you fill out forms, social security, death certificate. And uh, the role of the chaplains, my friend told me, is uh, they have a special uh, green and white striped vest so that you can figure out who's a chaplain. And the role of the chaplains is you walk around, he said, and you look at people as they go by and you look to see a certain look of a person that might mean that they need something and that they wanna talk about something. And then you find out whatever it is that that person might need and you try to do it with them. And they might need a social security clerk and they might need a uh, some kind of an insurance form or they might need unemployment insurance advice or they might need to talk to you about how they can't sleep at night or they might uh, tell you they have tell you about who was missing in their family. And you do whatever you can do with that person. You bring them to the right person or you sit with them. My friend told me, it was. I thought this was so interesting. I thought it was fine. He said part of their instructions in chaplaincy, uh, and everybody's getting deputized as a chaplain, as a minister of some kind, is that you cannot pray with anybody you can't offer to pray with anybody. You're deputized by the Red Cross, which is a national organization. So you can't legally offer to pray with anybody. But if somebody says, Will you say a prayer for me or with me? then you can. It's just, I actually like that very much. I think in the, in the middle of this whole thing, we're saying, This is the way a democracy works. And these are the ways we, we, we continue to keep freedom of religion in our country, we keep it free. So the reason I'm telling you this whole story is in the same email, he said, I, so I spent my one day, day, the day before yesterday or whatever, at uh, that place, he said, I came home, and just in the course of the, in the email, he said it was my birthday, and he's a very great cook, but he said uh, I really wasn't up for cooking, so fortunately uh, my sons cooked dinner, that was great. Um, but then he said, you know, but the day before that was my grandmother's 100th birthday. And um, I, I haven't ever met his grandmother. I know his mother. So he has a mother. He has a grandmother with a 100th birthday who has two sisters who are 98 and 96. And uh, he said, the 98 year old one has been lording it over the 96 year old one the whole life because she's got two extra years of life. <laughs> And he told me a little bit of the story of the party that they had the day before and how extraordinary. His sons, their partners, everybody's, uh, these these old women have a lot of progeny and they have a lot of progeny. So it was quite a big party and how extraordinarily wonderful the day was. And then the next day he was down doing that other thing. And what I was thinking about is we need such extraordinarily spacious minds these days. We have to do everything. We just need an enormous amount of space. And this we have to have room for that. We have to have room to go the next day and be chaplains. That image of chaplain in the world, chaplain in, the, in New York, around the World Trade Center, seemed to me the image for the whole world. Suppose the whole world put on green vests, and walked around and looked at who needed to talk about something. Everybody has got something that they need help with. And what if we all wore chaplains deputies that said, you wanna talk to me? I'll see if I can help you. Once, years ago, I just remember that this moment, we were in some country where we weren't tremendously fluent in the language. I think actually we were in Chile, we were in Chile. So I speak enough Spanish, but uh, not enough to have transacted this, to have discussed with the person in this pharmacy where we were, that the batteries that they were selling us for my husband's hearing aids were not going to work. They weren't the right batteries. There was something off about them. I mean, the very special kind of hearing aids. These batteries were not going to work, and I couldn't quite work out with this pharmacy person what it was that we needed and where we could get them. There was a person online, in line, right behind us, overhearing this conversation, who spoke enough of something, I don't remember whether he did this in English or Spanish, he made that in Spanish, and said, look, my mother has a hearing aid, just like those, and needs batteries just like yours. There's a battery place three blocks from here, and uh, it's upstairs. He said, come with me. And got out of the line, and he took us to the battery place uh, three blocks away, and upstairs, and we got batteries and at the I, sa- I said to him, "You know you've been extraordinarily kind." He said, "No, Chileans are like that <laughs> 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 so, but, you know, and I did not remember that story, I don't think, until now, and it's easily ten years um, but I think people are like that, not Chileans. I think everybody is like that. If you are next to somebody and you overhear them having a need that you happen to know the answer to, you would speak up, wouldn't you? Sure you would. You wouldn't. I think that's a natural inclination of the human heart. And I think that's really what we're called upon to do these days, is to somehow deputize each other, Tell the whole world, let's all put on green vests and help each other out. Whatever you need. I think we need bigger minds than usual. I'll find a piece of a poem. When I talked to Naomi yesterday... And um, Naomi Newman, she said, really what's important is, uh, uh, is to be able to create something new, to see that this is what the, the human enterprise is about. We can think past pain and make something uh, new and creative and beautiful and exalted and uplifting. We can play the cello at a funeral. There's, there's a way in which uh, being able to play a cello at a funeral. I'll read you the poem in a minute. I want to tell you something else first. The poem I was looking for, I'll bring it in its entirety, I just had a piece of it today anyway, uh, is uh, Yehuda, Yehuda Amichai. He's a uh, Israeli poet, died not so long ago, in this year, I think, maybe in the last year. Hmm? 2000, 2000. He wrote a a poem that begins, a, a person, he said, this is a man. A man doesn't have time in his life to have time for everything. Ecclesiastes was wrong about that. You know, a time to live and a time to die, a time to this and a time to that. So Yehuda Amichai, a man doesn't have time in his life to have time for everything. Ecclesiastes was wrong about that. A man needs to love and to hate at the same moment, to laugh and to cry with the same eyes, with the same hands to to throw stones and to gather them. I'll bring you the whole of that next week. Wanted to tell you something else. Why don't you tell. It was a, just another image. It has to do with how I am these days, working with this whole situation. I have a way. By the way, I've I've been telling people when you meet people and they say, "Oh, Sylvia, so yeah. I've been gone for a while." They say, "How are you?" And I've been really feeling strongly that the only helpful answer in now is. I'm doing as well as I can, given what's going on. That It's fine. Because it's not fine, but I'm doing as well as I can. We're all doing as well as we can. Even those of us who aren't doing well at all are doing as well as we can. Because we're doing as well as we can. We always are. We can't. Nobody does less than that, ever. And there's a way in which... Um, There was a, in in this very article that I read you in which uh, the author told about that monument to the firefighters, it, by the way, is on the last page of the most recent issue of Smithsonian Magazine, the November Smithsonian. Um, this uh, author, Samuel Friedman, is talk- begins by saying, on top table rec- beside the front door of my family's apartment in upper Manhattan, There sits an ornate tray containing spare house keys, two shoehorns, a stray Pokemon card, and a roll of Kodak Gold 200 film. We finished shooting the 24 Exposures several weeks ago, my wife and I, and yet we cannot bring ourselves to take the film a few blocks away for developing. We know what those pictures will show. And he talks about it being uh, the Labor Day weekend and uh, taking their two sons on a cruise around... Manhattan Island just before they went back to school and taking a roll of film of pictures of them with the towers in the background. And he said, um, talking about why can't we develop the film, he said, knowing what became of the towers, we can't bear to see the photograph. Maybe it's that, he said, or maybe we clutch that little cylinder of film as a talisman of innocence. And I thought to myself about talisman of innocence, like... um, People are saying a lot, the world is now different as of 9-11. I feel that a lot. But I was thinking about also, I'd like to not feel that so strongly. I'd like to feel perhaps we've woken up incrementally more. But I think about when people say, uh, most of us have probably had the experience. If it isn't with us, if someone we've loved has called us or come to see us, or come out of a doctor's office and said, it's not good. So huh? mm-hmm. Probably a number of people here have had mammograms that have not been good or other grams that have not been good or gotten a word of something else that has not been good. And I think about it all the time when I go every year and I have my mammogram and they say, don't get dressed. We'll be back in five minutes. Uh, you want to read? Um, and you think you so, and I always think to my you know, magazine. I always think to myself, this five minutes may change my life. Then I try to remind myself that the five minutes will not change my life. If something is not right, it's already not right. It was all right it was not all right a while ago. Not happening in these five minutes, they're not all right. It's just that I don't know about it yet. And there's something about knowing about it, about if anybody here is one of those people that has had the five minutes not come out all right, you know that the world changes afterwards. All right, five years later, put the other shoe down. Mm -hmm. Ten years later, you can relax a little more. But there's a level of vigilance in the mind and a level of preciousness about the life that is different after you develop the film whether it's the Kodak Gold with the pictures of the towers, we develop the mammogram. After it becomes clear in the mind, that's actually the film that needs to be developed, that it's all very precarious. Go out in the morning, there's no guarantee that everyone that we care about is going to come home all right that night, with or without tumors here or anyplace else. And that after the event, Wow, before that, I had no idea how tenuous life is. And when it becomes clear, it's just as tenuous today. It's really just as tenuous today as it was three months ago. It's not any less safe. I mean, we now know particular ways in which it might not be safe, but it was the same less safe three months ago. Now we know. And what, the, how can we live in the way that best expresses the fact that we know? I think, in a sense, it it seems so clear to me that the only response is uh, I go back, you know, go back to the same metaphor is put on the green vest and look around and say, "What do you need? How can I help you? What can I do for you? Can I hold your hand a little while? Do you like to say a prayer together?" You need me to help you fill out your social security. What do you need? What can I do for you? The very short time. The thing about the time, is we don't know how much time we have, but it's probably short. Just tell you one more image from this. this um, Samuel Friedman says on the Upper West Side, he said, uh, talking about New York, he said, in happier times, ours is a raucous, rude, cacophonous city, a pastiche of cur- cursing and fetching and laughing too loud. Now when we take in a street fair, when we run in the park, the sound is of strained pl- politeness, of waiting to be seated at a funeral. I think more it's like we're not so much at a funeral, but maybe we're in a hospital where there are a lot of wounded. Um, I was thinking about two images. One of them is being at parties in hospitals in um, uh, wards with children with grievous illnesses. They have Halloween parties on hospital wards, oncology wards for children. And people wear costumes and they make costumes around bald heads and they... And they play in the middle of hospitals with young children, knowing, and their parents knowing as well, that they are grievously ill. They may not live. And in the first year after I was married, my husband and I lived in uh, Brooklyn when he, he was an intern at, a, uh, uh, at Maimonides Hospital in Borough Park. And for complicated reasons, on the... Uh, the holy days in September. Um, are you turning that, or did we use it up? I can turn it. Well, I'll tell the last story on the tape. That means I talked too long. <laughs> I'm happy to be back. <laughs> My husband was an intern at Maimonides Hospital, and for reasons too complicated and long to go into, um, we were not part of a congregation in the community, although the community was full of congregations. Um, And we went to religious services at Maimonides Hospital, where he was part of the medical staff. And um, we were very young, and uh, the people at the services were for the most part very old and sick, they were in the hospital too sick to go home. And particularly around uh, the holy day prayers that reflect on the passage of time and um, what sprouts afresh in the morning and withers by nighttime. Probably most especially around the prayer that reflects on who knows what's gonna happen this year, who's gonna die this year, who's gonna die and some people are gonna die this year. Who this way and who that way and who by this cause and who by that cause. And felt really that there was a certain kind of charged atmosphere in that room. There were all these people, many of them likely to die quite ill. And I thought there was a kind of a heightened awareness of the fragility of life, not mournful. I don't remember feeling mournful about it. I just remember feeling alert to it. So we are all now alert. We are really alert to, not that the world has become more dangerous, but that life is so extraordinarily precious and temporal, not going to be forever. What if you had only one day left or a couple of minutes left? Most of the people, well, you know this, of course, most of the people who knew that they were about to die phoned up and said, I love you. But they had cell phones. Meantime, we could be doing that with each other, all the time, with or without. So I, uh, I almost said, I can't tell you how pleased I am to be back, but actually I can. <laughs> <laughs> I am very pleased to be back, I love you. <laughs> so take good care.